2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 13, or sorry, 14, a little bit of what happened. The, the king of Syria is looking to battle the king of Israel, and every time he makes a plan, he gets thwarted. The king of Israel isn't there. The Israelite army is not there. And so he's comes to the necessary conclusion, there has to be a mole, right? And so uh, his fellow army men tell him, no, it's actually not a mole, it's a prophet. It's a prophet of God named Elisha. He somehow knows what you're saying, even in your bedroom. And so he goes in verse 14, he sends horses and chariots to where Elisha is and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city where he was. When the servant of Elisha, of the man of God, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Elisha, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord did open his eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed again to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he did. He struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And then here's the last little bit. As soon as they enter Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they might see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My my father, shall, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Elisha answered, No, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Instead, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, He sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray. Thank you, Lord, for these words. May they be an encouragement. May they be a light into any dark places we might have in our hearts. May they be a reminder of your strength and your power and your love for your people. We pray that the youngest of our children would learn these things as they are taught the gospel. And we pray that we would not only hear the gospel, but that we would would obey the gospel. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I've told this story before. I'll probably tell it it again. Uh, There's tale of of an ancient uh, South American tribal group that uh, puts their, their young men through, through one final test before they become official men, official members of the tribe. And the test goes like this. They take the young man who is about to come of age and they drop him 
in the middle of the jungle, pitch black, no tools, no nothing. And the test is simple. If you're alive, when we come to get you in the morning, you are an official member of the tribe. If you are not, then you have nothing to worry about. That's the test. One particular man was so paralyzed by the fear of animals attacking, uh, rival tribal groups attacking, or just the general fear of the unknown, that he did not move an inch. The men of the tribe left him there right around sunset, and he did not move an inch until dawn. How do you know this? Well, because the beauty of the story comes at sunrise. As dawn approached and the sun began to shine on all the dark crevices of the forest, the young man saw someone. And he later recognized him as his friend. And then as the sun continued to rise, he saw another friend and a cousin and a brother and an uncle. On and on and on and on. Come to find out, though he could not see them, they were there the entire time. It was, it was advertised as a test of fortitude and strength, but it was really a demonstration of the love that these men had for the members of the tribe. It was a demonstration to show that though you feel alone, you never are. It was a demonstration to show that even though there are real dangers in this world, we, the members of the tribe, are more than any of these dangers can pose. Why do I tell you that story? Uh, if you remember, the book of Kings was written to Israel in exile. There are, here's, here's a little picture of what it means to live in exile. Uh, number one, you're away from your home. So that means different language, different food, different customs, different music, different things that are acceptable, different things that are not. Imagine being dropped in the heart of Mongolia or Russia. Many of us would not do well. We don't speak the language. They might wear different clothes. They have different customs. Things that are acceptable here are not acceptable over there, vice versa. You've been conquered, right? There's no... We are Israel. No, you're part of Babylon now, or you're part of Assyria or Persia. There's no, you know, I'm proud to be an American. There's none of that because you're not an American anymore. You're conquered. No national pride. You have feelings of shame. Your one hope. You remember the hope of Israel? It was told to David. He said, you will have a king and he will reign forever. This Messiah is coming. But constantly throughout the book of Kings and throughout their time in exile, that line of David was in jeopardy. It seemed like the last remaining member of that line was constantly in danger of dying. And finally, the temple is destroyed. And if you remember, that temple, that tabernacle, was a sign of God's presence. So when that was destroyed, they're asking themselves the question that many of us ask. Is God here? Is God here? Is God with us? That's just a small picture of what it is like to live in exile. So from all accounts, Israel is defeated. They feel like this little boy dropped in the middle of the jungle with no help. 
So imagine you're an Israelite and you read 2 Kings chapter 6. What are you supposed to glean from these words? What we're going to see this morning is that God says to you, his people, for all time, I am more. I am more than your fears, more than your troubles, more than your pain. What we'll see from this passage is that God has more knowledge. God has more power and God has more grace. Let's start with knowledge. Um, Our story begins with this almost comical episode. In in the first few uh, verses, you see the, the king of Syria racking his brain trying to defeat the armies of Israel. And so he confers with all his best generals and and lieutenants, and he comes up with a battle plan. And he says, all right, we're going to attack at this time and at this place. But every single time he makes a new plan, he finds it thwarted. Every time he feels like he's going to ambush the Israelite army, they're not there. It happens once. It's a coincidence, right? It happens twice. You tip your hat. You say, Good strategy. You, you outdid me here. But it starts happening three, four, five, six times. There's really only one reasonable explanation. There's a mole. There has to be. And so he asks this question in verse 11. Will you not show me which one, of, which one of you is it? Which one of you is telling my plans to the king of Israel? Which one of you is for the enemy army? I don't know what he was expecting. If someone, you know, okay, it's me, you know. Uh, but we read in verse 12, it's no one, my Lord, but it's actually Elisha. Elisha somehow tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. How does he do this? God has more knowledge. Now, how does this display of knowledge hit home for Israel? They have been conquered, right? You hear the story of how God prevented Israel from being conquered by the Syrians, but the people who are hearing the story have been conquered. They have been taken over by an enemy army. And so they're wondering, where's your knowledge now, God? Why, why didn't you stop the Babylonians from conquering us or the Assyrians or the Persians? What, why protect them and not us? I wonder if you've had similar questions phrased differently. Why didn't you prevent me from making that mistake, Lord, if you knew what was going to happen? Why did you let this happen to my children? Why did you let me take this job if you knew the boss was terrible? Why did you let me buy this house if the market was going to crash? Why, 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 why? I recently uh, discovered a book called The Moon is Always Round. Um, If you are quick to cry, I do not recommend this book. (laughs) Oh, I was, yeah. It hit me hard. Uh, It's a tremendously sad book, but it is a good book. It it, it helps, um, I won't spoil it. it. It helps those who have gone through tragedy make sense of it in light of what scripture says about God. But I will tell you the crux of the story. Um, there's this little, there's this young boy um, who likes to look up, look outside and see the moon. And he sort of catalogs his days based on the shape of the moon, right? So he'll say, when this happened, the moon looked like a banana. And then you would hear his dad 
No, son. The moon is always round. So he would continue. Well, when this happened, the, the moon looked like a slice of an apple. And his dad would come running from the other room. No, son. The moon is always round. And on and on it would go. Today it looks like a shriveled orange. No, son. The moon is always round. And this goes on for about 20 pages. The moon looks like this. No, it's always round. Well, today the moon looks like this. No, the moon is always round. Finally, the, the story ends with a, a funeral. And the father is standing, as I am now. And his son is, is sitting in one of the first few rows. And instead of making the statement, he asks a question. And he says, Son, what shape is the moon? And his son responds, The moon is always round. What does that mean? asked the dad. And the boy responded with tears in his eyes that God is always good, even when we can't see it. So Christian, as you look out at the moon, as you consider that God has knowledge, but he doesn't always prevent things that you think are, are bad or evil, consider the moon. Just like the moon, you might only see slivers of God's goodness. You might only see traces of God's knowledge and God's power. But that does not mean that the moon is not fully there. You may not be able to see it at all, but it is always there. The moon is always round. Israel may not have seen it. Everything that happened to them was by the plan of God. Every time they were conquered, first by the Assyrians, you need to know your ABCs of church history, by the way, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and by Cyrus of Persia. Every time they were conquered, God remains good. He knew it. He knew that they would conquer them. He knows what happens even in their bedrooms. How is this good news for, for you, Christian? Um, many of our fears arise out of the unknown, right? We don't know what this new job has in store for us. We don't know if this new purchase is a good investment. We don't know if these teachers are going to be as good as the ones we had before. We don't know if this marriage is going to last. We don't know if our children are going to be faithful to the Lord when they grow up. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Who does? Your God. Your God who has more knowledge. He knows. And more than knowing, He is good. And he works out all things for the good of those who love him. Amen? Amen. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. It is not our job to figure out God's plan. It is simply to trust in it. The depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. He continues, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, Christian. As Paul said, amen. But you know, it is true that God has all the knowledge, but all the knowledge and all the wisdom in the universe is next to useless without the ability to do something about it. 
And so we rejoice in the fact that God not only has more knowledge, he has more power. So the Syrian king finds out it's Elisha. It's Elisha thwarting his plans. Let's go get Elisha. Obviously, he didn't think through the fact that if Elisha knows his battle strategies, he also probably knows that an ambush is coming. But Elisha doesn't run away. Elisha stays. And the focus actually turns away from Elisha and onto his servant. His servant, we read in verse 15. When he rose early in the morning and went out, try to imagine this if you can for a moment. You walk out of your door to go grab the mail or a newspaper, and instead of seeing your lawn, you see an army with horses and chariots all around. And so the servant asked what any of us might. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Before we look at how Elisha answers, I want to take you to Psalm chapter 2 really quick. It's going to help us understand how Elisha responds. In this psalm, you can see the kings of the earth, enemy nations, are, are trying to overthrow the nation of Israel. And for anyone who's played chess, how do you overthrow an army? You take out the king. So they're, they're gathering together. They're taking counsel. They're making their strategies. How are we going to take out the king against the Lord and his anointed, the anointed king? And we read in verse 4. This is God's response. Let that sink in for a second. The kings of the earth, the best kings of the earth, the best and the brightest are gathering together, figuring out how they're going to thwart God's plan. And God laughs. It's funny. I mean, you've, you've done this before. Uh, someone's called you after a you know, after a Category 1 hurricane, you know, they live out of state. They don't know about Florida. And they call you after a Category 1 hurricane, right? Are you okay? You laugh, exactly. Of course I'm okay. It was a little baby hurricane. They don't, it just barely counts as a hurricane, right? That's kind of what Elisha did. When the servant comes face-to-face with the enemy army, he's worried. He's anxious. What are we going to do, Elisha? Look at their big army. What are we going to do? There's just two of us. He was troubled. Elisha's response was calm. Maybe he was even laughing a little bit. Why? Not because he had greater faith, but because he knew the truth that in front of him was a little baby army. And they would have to face a much greater greater army. So he says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Go back a few thousand years. You are Israel. You are exiled. You have been conquered. And all the promises of God seem out the window. You have been conquered by an enemy army. This is exactly what you need to hear. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You have not been conquered because God all of a sudden lost his power. You have not been conquered because the enemy was too strong. No, God has more power. So the question is, what do we do in exile? What do we do with the knowledge that God has more power? Well, you know, you're probably, I might be going out on a limb here, but you're probably not going to walk out on those doors and see an army waiting for you. 
Probably, right? Right. So how do we apply this? Um, well, what are you going to face when you walk out those doors? What do you fear? Right? Some, some, of, us, some of us fear that our, our marriages aren't going to make it. Or that if they are going to make it, we're going to, we're going to make it, we're going to stay married, but we're just going to be miserable for the rest of our lives. And so we take the best counseling. We read the best books. We try everything in our power to make it happen. And what does God say to you? I have more power. I am the only power that can really transform this marriage. Take that and apply that to anything you want, Christian. Are you afraid that your children are, are not going to grow up fearing and loving the Lord? I am. I have two awesome kids, hopefully more on the way. I'm terrified. I am terrified because I have seen fantastic parents who have unbelieving children. I rest in the fact that I am not enough. My power, my seminary training, and all of those things, they are not enough. I rest in the fact that God has more power. Amen? That is what we rest in. True change requires true power. And God says to you, for all time, I am more. I am the more power that you need. Christ is so much more, in fact, that he can show you what true power is like. Imagine... Imagine you have an enemy, right? Imagine, let's, let's go into sports, why not? Imagine you have a sports team and you defeat your enemy by a little bit. You have a certain power, than, from, uh, a certain power over them. You can say that you were better, right? But they still have life because you barely beat them, Right? Now imagine you don't even try for like the first three quarters. And then in the fourth quarter, you start trying and you utterly annihilate them. There's no life. They're done. Here's why I bring that up. True power is taking the best shot the enemy has to offer and still standing strong at the end of it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's worth noting. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus did exactly this. He took the best shot the enemy had to offer. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He was born like you and me in the likeness of men. He found himself in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. He allowed himself to die even death on a cross. That's the best shot Satan had to offer. That is the best shot our enemy had to offer. It was death. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus died. Jesus stayed dead just to make sure that nobody would think it was a fluke. And then on the third day, he rose again so that we can proclaim and even bellow what we proclaim usually on Easter morning, right? Can you join me? Christ is risen. Absolutely. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
That, that is our hope. That Christ has so much more power over the enemy because he has taken their best shot, death. And he now sits on his throne commanding these very armies victorious. He watches over you in perfect knowledge and in perfect power. So whatever your fears, Christian, and they are valid fears, whatever your fears, you can rest You can rest in the fact that your Savior, your God, has more power over any of those fears than you can ever hope to have on your own. That is your hope. That is what we rest in. But let's take a moment to contemplate what we know so far. God has more knowledge. God has more power. If that's all we know... Kids, imagine your parents knew everything and could do anything. I see no children smiling because that's terrifying. That's not praiseworthy. That's absolutely terrifying, right? We're not saying cool. We're saying, "Uh uh-oh, I can't get away with anything. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what this passage shows us is that we have a God who, in addition to having more knowledge and more power, also has more grace. Think about this. Without an army, right? Without an army, God could have said, be gone, Syria. Be gone. We know that. The God who created the world by simply speaking could have destroyed a little puny human army. We know that. But he does have an army. And they could have destroyed Syria even if God didn't and his army didn't. Elisha took them to the king of Israel who was waiting with his army, right? Should I strike him down? Should I strike him down? Three chances. But instead we get this beautiful picture of grace. The Lord causes them blindness and rather than defeating them, he leads them to the Israelites. And Elisha tells the Israelite king in verse 22, set bread and water before them that they might eat and drink and go to their master. So you know what the king of, king, uh, king of Israel did? He prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again. Do not gloss over that. The Syrians did not come again a single time on raids into the land of Israel. God had profoundly defeated their enemies. And he did it. (laughs) He did it with grace. He did it with grace. And this is maybe part of the story that we're not as ready for. Because we we do really well when we have an enemy, right? If we have a named enemy, if we can look the enemy in the eye, we know what to do. I'm ready to fight. But what does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6? We do not war against flesh and blood. Your neighbor who really bothers you is not your enemy. That guy who cut you off in traffic, not your enemy. Republicans, not your enemy. Democrats, they're not your enemy. Liberals, conservatives, people of different skin color, they are not your enemies. We do not war against flesh and blood Christians. 
we can get behind having more knowledge. We can get behind God having more power. And we love the idea of receiving grace. But how well do we do when we are called to show grace? How well do we do when we see God showing grace to others? I'm reminded of a scene in uh, Le Miserable where, if you've seen it uh, or read it, the, uh, the legalistic officer, Javert. Javert is fixated on punishing this criminal, uh, Valjean, because he sees him as the enemy. But one day, Valjean surprised him. He had an opportunity to kill uh, Javert. And instead, Valjean shows him mercy. He's thrown off by this. And he's so thrown off that he feels compelled to show him mercy back, right? An eye for an eye kind of thing. You showed me mercy. Okay, I'll show you mercy. And I wish the story ended there because it would be nice and lovely. You showed me mercy. I showed you mercy. But doesn't. Because grace, grace is not normal. And I believe we in the church are a little too accustomed to grace. We need to feel and, and be jolted. We need to feel the weirdness of grace, right? This is what happened in the rest of the story. Spoiler. Uh, Valjean is so disgusted with himself that he, an officer of the law, would allow a criminal to go free. That he starts to think on it and dwell on it. It starts to corrupt him. It starts to fester. And he finally gets to a point where he can't handle it anymore. And he takes his own life. That's, that's the jarring nature of grace when we try to do it apart from the empowering power of the gospel. Without Christ, grace is not normal. We need Jesus. We need the empowering spirit of God. And so the question for you, Christian, the, the, the question is this. If we were to use these screens to display your social media posts. If we were to use these screens to, uh, as sort of a transcript of our private conversations when nobody is listening, who would we see as your enemy? Is it your boss? Is it your neighbor who doesn't mow the lawn? Is it your mother-in-law who won't leave you alone? Is it your sister? Is it your judgmental parents? Is it, like, what is it? What is it? Because through the, power of, through the power of Christ, we should have no enemies. Through the power of Christ, we should, as much as it depends on our, on our own power, as we will read in a moment, we should leave, live at peace with all because we have been shown immense grace. As we end here... Uh, we're familiar with Paul in Romans chapter 12. In verse 19, he writes these words. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We know that verse, we're familiar with it. Um, but I'm afraid that if I just put that verse up on the screen and you see, never avenge, I'm afraid that the idea you're, you're coming away with is just let things go. Those people I don't like are going to get what's coming to them. That sounds an awful lot like karma. We don't, we don't believe in karma here. That's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not karma. 
gospel is a gospel of grace. So let me read you the surrounding verses, the verses that people leave out when they, when they quote this text. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I believe this is verse 14. You are enabled through the gospel to bless those who persecute you. You have the power in Jesus to bless and not curse. You have the ability to rejoice with those who rejoice. You can weep with those who weep. You have everything you need to live in harmony with one another. You have all the knowledge you need not to be haughty, arrogant, but in fact, to associate with the lowly. You know better than to be wise in your own sight. And so, Christians do not repay evil for evil, but instead, you have everything you need to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, there are circumstances that don't allow this. Live peaceably with all. Then we get this verse that you are all familiar with. Next one. To the contrary. To the contrary of repaying evil for evil, you have the ability. We're a little too used to this, right? Like, if your enemy's hungry, feed. This is weird. You don't feed your enemies. You're grateful that they're going to starve. You rejoice, right? That's what humans do. No, Christian, you, you were once enemies of God. And while you were enemies, Christ died for you. And so, if your enemy is hungry, you can feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. The way some of us talk about the other side, the other people, we've made it impossible to share a meal. We've made it impossible in our own hearts to extend grace to those that we think are unworthy. Let me simply remind you in, in all the love that I can possibly muster, Christian, you were the unworthy one. You were the enemy of God. And now you have been made a son and daughter of the king. And you have everything you need to show this perfect love to others. Let me end with this. And I am going to skip a few slides for our slide person. The perfect love of our father and his son, Jesus Christ, has set us free. Perfect love casts out fear so that we can show the same grace that we have been shown to others. If you're wondering, how can I do this? I am so glad. I am so glad. Because you're starting to realize that you can't do this. You need more. You need more strength. You need more endurance. You need more perspective. You need more knowledge. And what does God say to you, Christian? I am more. So let us rejoice in that fact as we pray. Dear God, thank you that you are more. Thank you that you are more than we could ever hope or need for. Thank you that you have given us everything we need to do the things that you have called us to do. I pray that this table that we are about to partake of would, would encourage us, would strengthen us to do the things you've called us to do. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.